Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Ah, good evening. This evening, I've got the great pleasure of talking to my good friend Ed Parsons from Google. And so this evening, we're going to be talking about Google's new community mobility reports. But before we do, let me introduce Ed to you. Ed Parsons is the geospatial technologist of Google, which is the most fantastic title that I think anybody working in the geo world has ever had. He's responsible for evangelizing Google's mission to organize the world's information. And he's also a member of the board of directors of the Open Geospatial Consortium, what you and I know as the OGC. And he was co-chair of the W3C OGC Spatial Data on the Web Working Group. To add to that, he's a visiting professor at the University College in London, and he's based at Google's office in London and anywhere else, he says, where he can plug in his laptop. This evening, his laptop is plugged in in his home in West London, and we're talking across the internet and with me in North London. So, good evening, Ed. Thanks very much for joining us. Good evening, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be uh one of the members of the, the the podcast. I've been an avid listener for your your relatively few podcasts so far. But I, as part of my evening walk, my exercise, I've I've been a, an intent listener to yourself and Ed. It's been great. It's great to hear. Thank you. So, how's it working for you being locked down in London rather than travelling the world on first class aeroplanes all the time? <laughs> yeah, no, the first class travel, you, you exaggerate. It was never first class travel. Well, maybe once or twice I got <laughs> upgraded, perhaps. No, so yeah, that bit is clearly out of the window. And that part of my job has, has changed enormously. But actually, most of what I do hasn't changed that much. You know, I, like many people at Google, are used to working remotely. You know, I kind of joke in my bio that my office is wherever my laptop is. And, and that that's pretty much the case. We're we're sort of set up to work in the cloud, to work remotely. So, you know, many of the kind of regular meetings I have, we carry on having. I've been reaching out to many uh, people over the past couple of weeks, talking about the apps they're trying to develop or working with various government organizations about, you know, data access and so on. So all of that has continued uh, pretty much the same way that, that it used to. The, the only bit I'm, I'm missing, and I am missing it, is is not meeting people in the flesh. Ah, uh, yeah, well, that's going to come back, hopefully. But you just mentioned something that interests me, Ed. You talked about talking to government and people about data and that. Have things changed particularly since the coronavirus or...? In some ways, I mean, we've, we've very, you know, Google has always had this very strong focus on on our users. So, you know, we try to carry on doing what we're doing because our users expect us to do. So a lot of the focus has been on making sure, you know, things like Google Maps are, you know, up to date and, and accurate, representing the enormous change that's gone on over the past few weeks you know, around the world. So, you know, a huge effort in terms of making sure that the opening hours of, of shops and, and places you might normally uh, visit are updated and are accurate. And that's been, a, you know, as you can imagine, a huge task uh, to do that. Yeah, and, and kind of making some sort of intervention. So if you search for you know, your local GP surgery or hospital, we'll, we'll put up a warning dialogue box and say, well, you know, under the current circumstances, you really shouldn't be planning on going to visit these places unless you have 
have a good reason to do so. And and just today we've sort of focused now more on on restaurants that provide takeaway services and making sure that they're they're exposed through through Google Maps. And and you know the big rationale there is is well where do you normally go for this information? Well, you should be able to find the information there. You know, you, we're not keen on developing new channels or new ways of accessing this information because it's not what people are going to use. It's not what they expect. So if I search for my local supermarket, I won't mention the brand, would you be able to tell me how long the queue is outside at the moment? Not quite, but I know some people that might be able to help okay. you with that. So uh, there's, as you would expect at the, under under the circumstances, there's a... There's a big sort of ecosystem and keen app developers are, are putting uh, together some quite exciting apps that, that crowdsource this right. sort of information. We can tell you the opening hours and how they may have changed and we can give you some sense of how busy it is. But but there are groups that are focused on on those particular problems of saying, you know, under the current circumstances, how long is the queue outside your, your local supermarket? That would be very useful. Okay, so... When you were talking about opening hours and stuff like that, I thought it made me think about some of the data that you're collecting, because you do collect data which says the, the busy hours in a place are between such and such and such and such, don't you? Yeah, that was in many ways the, the starting point for the, the, the community mobility reports we, that we've launched, you know, as, as a sense of, well, we have some pretty good idea of how people are moving around the world. How can we make that information available to to health agencies, to, to government planners, so that they can get some sense of how social distancing strategies are, are, are working. And so tell me a bit more about the mobility report. What do they comprise? How did you build them? So well, the general idea is, is that we think roughly about a third of the world's population at this point in time is under some form of of restriction in terms of how, how you can move about. And you know, if you just watch the TV, probably anywhere around the world, you'll see all sorts of decisions are being made with best efforts of governments and various agencies, but but not with a huge amount of data behind the scenes. You know, this has been a up until this point a, a crisis has been quite poor in data, but but quite heavily reliant on models that require lots of data. So we have been you know gathering information that comes from people that are volunteering their location information as part of location history in Google Maps for you know a good few years. And it's used to populate that little graph that you see on um, what we call a place page in Google Maps that will tell you relatively how busy this pub, this restaurant, this railway station is at any particular point in time. So what we wanted to do is to take that data, which is already anonymized, but to aggregate that to show changes in how population moves between particular sorts of places, so parks, um, transport hubs, you know, stations, transit stops, grocery places, and home, and and to see what impact uh, the the changes that have been implemented over the past couple of, of weeks are actually having. Um, so it is, as I said, derived from those those opt-in users of of Google Maps who are using the location history, um, and it compares. The, the changes that are probably, you know, on average two or three days old with what the situation was at the beginning of the year. So from that period, say from you know, the beginning of January to the beginning of, of February, that's the baseline. And we compare how many people are visiting parks, railway stations, grocery stores compared to that point in time. And at what level of granularity are you working? 
Well, we report at geographical areas. So in the UK, it's at a sort of a, a county, city level. In the States, it's down to uh, individual states, and they're broken down into counties and regions within those. They're the sort of geographical administrative boundaries that government agencies tend to right. use. You've probably got the data on my how many people are going to my local Sainsbury's or my local park, but you're not actually publishing that data at that level of granularity. We don't know. We don't have it at that, that level of granularity. And we've worked very hard, and it's taken us you know, quite a considerable period of time to, to make sure that we've come up with a, an information product that is driven by user privacy first. You know, a lot of effort has gone in behind the scenes to make sure that the information that is presented has you know, no risk of identifying an individual or having any kind of individual privacy concerns associated with it. Okay, so you've got to what probably is going to be the question that lots and lots of people are asking. In fact, I can imagine some privacy zealots, as I would describe them, absolutely freaking out about the issues. I'm not, but I can, I can hear the voices in the background. <laughs> in, yeah. In a post on the Google AI blog, I'm going to quote this. Your people say, in line with our AI principles, we've designed a method for analyzing population mobility with privacy preserving techniques at its core. To ensure that no individual's user journey can be identified, we create representative models of aggregate data by employing a technique called differential privacy together with K-anonymity. Now, you sent me some homework over the weekend, and I did read <laughs> an incredibly complicated paper on differential privacy. And I've got to be honest, I didn't understand a bloody word of it. Well, apart from the title. So give me a simple explanation. Yeah. What are you actually doing with this data? It is complicated, but there's a, there's a lot of logic behind it. So let me... Let me try and uh, explain it as best I can, because it is, as you say, it's, it's quite complex. So differential privacy is basically a mathematical approach to quantify how good you're doing at making data private. So it's a measure of the effectiveness of a query or an approach that you apply to data to make that data private so that an individual can't be identified within a data set. So it actually comes out with a, a quantifiable measure that you can use to look at an algorithm or a process and say, okay, how well is this algorithm or process protecting an individual within that data set from, from being identified? So it was developed by some scientists at Harvard oh, probably sort of 10 years or so ago. And in simple terms, what it, what it does is it applies noise, it adds noise as part of the analysis that you might be wanting to do to a data set so it preserves the statistical information. So the, the, the pattern that you're trying to, to see remains valid within the data, but the noise uh, has the impact that it, it prevents an individual record being identified as such. Right. So if you're doing this well, what differential privacy means that the analysis I carry out will be the same whether you as an individual are included in the data set or not. Now, that still sounds a bit sort of prosaic, I suppose. So maybe a better example would be, say, let's go, let's say that as Geomob, you managed a, a registration data set that created a database with the people that came along to Geomob every, every month or however. 
And in that data set, you had you know, people's name, you had their sex, you had their age, you had their email address. Uh, it's not unusual. Right. You'd have you know, a good rationale for collecting that information. And perhaps someone was interested in doing some analysis from a, a diversity point of view and said, well, can you let us look at your data set and we can see the diversity of the people that turn up to Geomob every, every month. And you might say, well, okay, we'll give you that data, but what we'll do is we'll strip out the name and we'll strip out the email to try and anonymize that data set. Now, what you might quite rightly say is, well, hang on a minute, Ed, if I have another data set that contains some of the elements of your data set, even if you've stripped out name and you've stripped out email, I might be able to compare these two data sets and, and match them and then find out who was attending Geomob. Gotcha. Now, what differential privacy tries to do is to, is to add some noise into the data set so it prevents that cross-linking, but still maintains the statistical viability of the data set. So with that Geomob example, what we might do is to say, actually, Stephen, we'll take your record and we'll make you a few years younger. And we'll take someone else in the database and we'll make them a few years older. And maybe we'll change my sex. So I'll change from being male to female, but someone else in the data set, I'll change from being female to male. And what you do is you add noise uh, using what's called a, a Laplace statistical distribution, which is a bit like the normal distribution you see, you know, the bell curve right. that you would expect in most data sets. But it's, it's double, exp double exponential, so it's more, more effect on the mean values within the data set. And so you add that noise, you kind of manipulate the data sets so that you know, individual records will change, they will become a little bit more fuzzy, but the actual amount of information remains the same. You still get the same statistical distribution you get, but you've modified the records so that they can't be identified in the same okay. way. Okay, so that it sense? sort of makes sense. So you have the same name, you'd end up with the same number of men male and female in that data set, and you'd end yeah. up with the same distribution of ages in that data set, but yeah. they'd be all swapped around each record so that they, you wouldn't have the same correspondence. Not necessarily all of them. Some, some would, would be, some right. wouldn't be. You know, it, yeah, it's to, and, and you know, the other element of, of that process is K and immunity, you said, and that, that basically says, well, within the data set that you've, you fiddle about with, you want to make sure that there are K records that are exactly the same. So you'd end up with K individuals in the data set that have exactly the same content. So you couldn't tell one from the other within that data set. Uh, so, so K anonymity means that you need quite large data sets to make this work. Uh, so it's not something you could probably do realistically on the GMOB registration database because there aren't enough records in it. But if you've got a million records. Exactly. So the K anonymity means you and, end and up with the same number of males and the same number of females. No, it means that the thing about differential privacy is you get to tune how well oh, I... you, you want to protect privacy. So there are, there are two values you deal with. One is, is K anonymity, which says, okay, I want K number of records that are the same. Right. So, for example, you might say, oh, I want K anonymity of 100. That means that within my data set, there were always 100 records that will have the same value in them. Got you. And you also then have a, a value called epsilon, which is the measure of how well you are maintaining privacy. 
And you can kind of change the value of, of epsilon to say, actually, I want to add more noise and therefore increase the privacy value. But as you can imagine, if you add lots more noise, you start to actually mess around with the distribution of the data and it becomes less accurate. So epsilon is something that you can kind of twiddle with to say, actually, you know, in this case, I want an epsilon value of two, which means that there's a fair amount of privacy, but uh, I'm not really messing up with the statistical accuracy right. of the data. And once you've done this differential privacy process to effectively prevent the data being de-anonymized later on, you then aggregate it as well. Yeah. Uh, aggregation may well be part right. of the process that gives you yeah. the differential uh, privacy. So differential privacy is, is, if you like, the measure of how successful whatever process you, you've applied to the data is. And... Uh, so that that process might be made up of adding random noise, uh, which is which is a main part of this. But it also may include, as you say, changing in effect the the spatiotemporal resolution, aggregating the data both in in space and time, which is which is something that you can do kind of uniquely with geospatial data that you couldn't do with with other data sets. That actually you know adds another level of, of privacy if you think about it. So my simple take on that is there's really not a lot to worry about here. But, and here's the question, <laughs> somewhere Google started off with a load of individual records. And yeah. how can we be certain that Google wouldn't provide unaggregated data to a third party or a government, particularly if a government tried to legally compel it? Well, I mean, we, I guess you need to differentiate between you know, a third party and, and a government. They're not no, quite the same. Forget the third so party. Let's take making data. Yeah, making data available to a third party is strictly controlled by all of the various mm. privacy regulations and the terms and conditions that you know Google has over any of its data sets. So you know that's that's never going to happen. That we'll make data available to a third party. You know, in these um, circumstances. I mean, the point around you know requests by government agencies is that well, you know, at a fundamental level, we. We have to abide with the law as it is in any particular jurisdiction. And in some jurisdictions, there is a requirement for any information collected by an organization like Google to be made available upon the presentation of, you know, a valid warrant or, you know, a valid process through the, the legal framework in that country. Now, what we can do to minimize that is to make those requests as, as restricted as possible. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a big, as you probably would have seen, you know, just looking at the web, there's this uh, concept that's emerged in the States of this idea of, of geofence requests where government agencies will say, well, uh, tell us all the people that were within this area on this particular date. And we, we, we push back on those and say, well, no, you need to be much more precise. You need to tell us why, who you're looking for and so on. Uh, but, but fundamentally, you know, if, if we have data around you know, data subjects, and there's a, a legal request to do that, we, we have to go through the process of, of potentially making that data available. That's something that, that really does concern you. Then, you know, all of this mm -hmm. is opt-in. You know, you don't have to, to use the location history function. It's something you have to switch on in Google Maps for it to start to record this and information. I so, I mean, fundamentally, that's, that's the, the primary mechanism you have for and I discovered that, unfortunately, I hadn't switched it on. And um, I went for a walk a few days ago and stopped to have a phone conversation with one of my kids and dropped my glasses. 
And by the time I got back, I couldn't couldn't remember exactly where I'd been standing. And had I had the location history on, I would have probably been able to see where I'd stopped for 10 minutes and been able to find my glasses. So I've now switched my location sharing or location history on, and now I'm con contributing to the next release of your community mobility reports. But yeah, you make... And I'd like to thank you, Stephen. And I'd, I'd yeah. thank everyone. You know, there's this huge value I think we as individuals get from yeah. doing this. You know, I, I you know, love looking back and, and working out where I was at you know, any particular day in the in the past. And and you are providing that that community benefit in terms of you know this information here about mobility under these circumstances. But it's also what powers you know fundamentally you know all the information about real time yeah. traffic. So. You know, there is a real virtuous circle here that by by contributing this information, you know, you are you know making you know Google Maps and the other services that take similar approaches better. Yeah, and I think it would be fair to say that at this point in time, we might be less worried about that in the UK than people might be in, I don't know, some repressive regime. I won't name a regime, but there are more repressive regimes where you might think twice about switching this kind of stuff on. And also, I, I guess, yeah. if, I, if I want to, I can, in fact, I know that I can because I checked before I switched it on. If you want to, when you switch it off, you can also opt to have all your history deleted. You can, and there, there are various sort of levels of, of functionality. You can have it deleted after a month or six months, or you know, you've, you've got complete control over that. It will it will automatically delete you know your historic data if you want to. And you know, it's it is you know information that is protected very very securely you know, within Google. We recognise it as being you know very very sensitive, and and you know, you can see what we've done here with these mobility data reports is is we've been very cautious in terms of the data that we're presenting. It's being presented at a, at a very abstracted level. It's being presented as, you know, paper reports as opposed to, you know, access to the real raw data. So we are being very cautious about, about making this information available. There's, there's probably lots more value and detail within these data sets. And, you know, in due course, I think society will, you know, perhaps you know, become more grounded in, in the use of this information in, in the future. You know, we, you know, I think there's a really interesting topic about the, the ethical use of, of this sort of location data uh, moving forward. But, you know, where we are at the moment, you know, privacy is all important. And so, you know, what, what we're doing to, to make this information accessible is going through many, many privacy hoops. And we, you know, I'm, I'm super confident that there's, there's, there's no risk whatsoever with this data of you know an individual being able to be identified from it so you couldn't use this data for the sort of contact tracing exercises that some people are advocating for example yeah i mean contract tracking is a is an interesting use case it, it's something that you know probably any of the through to data set uh, the, any of the approaches that we're talking about here which you know primarily use gps wi-fi cell belt cell-based location, none of that is precise enough uh, for contract tracing. You know, I think there are approaches that you could take using more of a sort of a proximity-based approach using sort of Bluetooth LE functionality. And I, I think that may well be a direction that, you know, governments end up pursuing to maintain a, 
a more robust sort of contract uh, tracking um, system. Uh, but that's a that's actually quite a different technology to what we're talking about yeah. here. Just to take um, an interest from me, how long did it take you to pull these first reports together from the time somebody had the idea that you could provide some kind of measure of mobility change to when you actually released them last week? Well, I mean, it had been stuff that we'd been investigating from, you know, the broader perspective of looking at urban mobility patterns. So, you know, we'd certainly done the homework to work out how we could make this data available with a, um, a strong sense of, of privacy and we, we've managed those processes and, and we've been looking at how do you do the analysis about how people move around the planet probably towards the end of last year if you if you dig and I can certainly send you the link for this that you could put in the show notes there are research reports that actually went out in in nature about this sort of approach for doing mobility mapping towards the end of last year so a lot of the, the groundwork had already been done uh, in terms of putting the reports together, it's probably t- two weeks, maybe just, wow. just about three weeks. It was very timely that you've been doing that research last year, wasn't it? And it, you know, it goes to that point. You know, I think there's there's huge value in in doing this from you know all sorts of yeah. different use cases. You know, be it urban planning, you know, be it you know ob- obviously you know epidemiology and, and so on. Uh, it, there's a real value there's real insights that can be uh, obtained from this you know anonymous data that, that's aggregated at a level that's still you know still quite valuable if you're talking about you know one kilometer grid cells around the planet that's that's still quite a lot of, of useful information that has you know no no risk for the privacy of, it, of an individual in that data set and in fact if you want to use this data to as a an influence or evidence in policy making. You don't want it at a granular level because you can't have policy set at such a granular level. You know, I mean, the city level, I can imagine New York is you don't really care about every grid square in New York. You're going to make a policy for the whole of New York City, aren't you? Yeah, and it's fascinating. I mean, one of the, the ports I'll, I'll link to looked at, looked at the, sort of the hierarchies of, of cities and it goes back to you know, I'm a, I'm a geographer by training. It goes back to, you know, the original Cristala model of urban morphology and, and how cities develop. And, you know, that was that was kind of a simplistic model. But with this data, you can see that, you know, many cities don't have one single core anymore. They're much more, you know, multimodal. There's still a, a hierarchy of places within a city, but it's not about the core and the periphery anymore. It's it's more nuanced, and it's it's fascinating. You know, it's it's good old fashioned economic geography, but we suddenly have a different insight to that with this new new source of information. So, have there been any surprising insights that have come out of the community mobility report so far? It's yeah, it's funny. I I think it it varies obviously you would expect you know geographically, but but not so much within. Within country, if you look across the UK, and probably you've you've flicked through the data, you know there's not a huge amount of variation, and, it, and it's uh, you know it brought a smile to my, me when I when I looked at the data for the first time, because I think you you'd been tweeting about I think you and Ken have been tweeting about when is it appropriate to use a map and when not, and this would be one of those examples where probably a map isn't that appropriate because actually there's not. You know, within the UK, no. a huge amount of variation. So there's not really very much to make a map of. But there are clear variations between different countries. You know, you can compare 
you know, UK and France, they're very similar in terms of the, the change. It's quite a marked difference, say, with, with California, which has had a, a smaller amount of change. And then, you know, Sweden uh, is an outlier, an outlier. And if you've been you know, watching the news, you'll know that you know, Sweden has taken a, a different approach to to social dis- distancing, and that's reflected in the data. Yeah, and now they're changing their mind, aren't they? Well, who knows? Yeah, I think that's you know that's part of the problem here. You know, we're all we've all been making many of these decisions, you know, as government agencies, a little bit in the blind, and and you know, it's hard. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an expert in you know health science and, and public health. But I imagine you know if you were involved, this must be so frustrating having to make these massively. Uh, complex and, and decisions that have huge impact on on countries with, with you know with so little data and probably knowing that there's no right decision they're only less worse decisions yeah yeah exactly yeah so let's let's look forwards just a little bit and imagine that the you know we're at the end of the year hopefully the virus if not completely gone it's past its peak and life is getting back to normal what other ways do you think these mobility reports will be used once we're out of this um, this crisis well I and mean, i think these particular reports will disappear you know once particular health emergency has disappeared we'll stop producing these reports but then we'll probably sit back and say okay well how did we do you know what was the societal impact of doing this how did society view this sort of information? What were the privacy concerns? And, you know, my personal hope, and this isn't, you know, by no means guaranteed or in you know, no way expressing a, a future policy of Google. I, you know, I hope that we, we see the value in these sorts of, of information products and start to think about making more of this information available to, you know, different communities, be they, you know, those involved in government in town planning or transport strategy or you know at a you know at a more commercial level about understanding you know footfall and, and all of that information that you know currently is collected by by someone sitting in a deck chair with a counter on the high street we could be much more sophisticated about that but you know i recognize that this is still you know a very challenging territory from from the point of view of privacy you know we still are highly sensitized to this but i think you know it's something that we are going to get more used to and you know the the comment that you made a little bit earlier about contact tracing may well be something that we suddenly will become quite familiar with if the way out of the current crisis is that we all have an app on our phones that tells us you know who we're interacting with you know again largely anonymously because it doesn't actually identify individuals until there's a as an issue, we'll probably end up getting getting used to a lot of this sort of data. But, but you know, I think a lot of those drivers will come not from commercial companies, not from the platform providers, but from, from government. Yeah, and I think they have to. You know, I mean, I think there's a legitimate question to be asked about what a bad actor could do with some of this technology. But at the same time, you know, when tens of thousands of people are dying around around the world, you know, and forecasts are of hundreds of thousands or even millions dying. If governments can use technology that infringes in some way on our privacy, but protects us in some way, then I think it's a trade-off we have to consider. I I think Um, you're right. And, you know, in some ways, I guess it kind of reflects on the debate we've had in in the UK over the years about, you know, CCTV, you know, uh, 
there were huge concerns about the the, the spread and the, the use of CCTV. I think we've sort of come to, to terms with the fact that it's there and it does have an important role in public safety. So you know, maybe a, a similar approach will, will happen here. But, but it, it's a debate that we have to have. You know, I think as a geospatial community, we've often tried to shy away from some of these ethical questions because they've been maybe a bit too difficult or we didn't think we needed to have those discussions. But, but you know, it's really been highlighted you know, over the past past month or so, and it will be up there as a sort of priority of, of discussion over the next six months for sure. I'm sure it will be. I mean, I think just wrapping up, you know, first of all, I want to say I think it is absolutely incredible that the technology that was quietly giving me the traffic information in my Google Maps when I was using it to drive somewhere or the technology that was telling us what were the busy hours in a shop or a restaurant or something is now able to tell us, give us an insight into how effectively the social distancing policies of various cities and governments are working. You know, that's a remarkable achievement that we've had that. And, um, you know, I think, you know, personally, I think Google should be congratulated. And I want to say thank you to you guys for everything that you've done. It's been a pleasure, Ed. I feel very honoured that we've got you here talking in such detail and so candidly about the work that Google have been doing. I'm sure our listeners are going to love listening to this episode. So let me wrap up by asking a standard closing question as somebody who's been to quite a few Geomobs going right back to the very early days. Have you got a favourite moment from Geomob? I don't have a single favourite one. And I think I've, I've not gone to anywhere nearly enough geomobs. I, th I think the thing that I probably like most is just the diversity. You, you're never quite sh sure who might turn up. And, you know, to be honest, I've probably not been to geomob for, for two or three years. I've been, I've been traveling so much. So there's part of me that's actually quite excited that you're going remote and you're doing this online now because it will allow me to, to have a much better chance of being there, uh, you know, at least virtually in the room to, to participate. Uh, it's, it's the diversity, it's the interesting folks that turn up to do presentations I, that you were not expecting that, that I really value so much. I absolutely agree with you. And not only are we going online during this coronavirus, but um, we're going to be recording the whole thing so that for the people who didn't manage to get an invitation to the live event tomorrow evening, for example, they'll be able to log on in a couple of days time and we'll have that whole thing up on YouTube, of course. Fantastic. So final thing, in case people want to get in touch with you and ask you questions about this stuff, what's the best way to get in touch with you? <laughs> I always joke, just Google me. I, I come up quite high <laughs> on the results. But, um, okay. I, I'm Ed Parsons on most platforms. So yeah, you should be able to find me quite okay. easily. Fine, great. Ed, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very, very much. I look forward to seeing you once the lockdown is over and we'll have to get you talking at Geomob soon after that when we can all get back together and drink beers after a Geomob. Take care. Thank you. Likewise, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the Geomob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. 
You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.